they're caught up in a cyclone, the, the ship goes over, and this one guy who's like in his early 20s swims 15 nautical miles in a cyclone in the middle of the night, fights off a shark attack, and then he's stranded on this island, this remote rocky island, for like four or five days before he's picked up by a passing pearl lugger. Just an incredible story that had been lost to history. One of those just remarkable survival stories. G'day, this is Living the Dream, a podcast from Gage Roads, where you'll hear from people who are all about going after what they love. We'll chat to photographers, musos, surfers, designers, a range of people who are living life their way. All right, this episode, we're hunting shipwrecks. You might have seen or heard about a new doco series on Disney Plus called Shipwreck Hunters. Now, the locations are epic. Visually, it's next level. But beyond the aesthetic, there's some real substance here. The team of divers and filmmakers make some significant discoveries. That's right, they actually find ships. Uh, there's lots of uh, mysteries from the deep that they uncover. It's pretty, pretty riveting stuff. And the crew that put it together from right here in WA. Brendan Hutchins is from Van Media. He directed and produced the series. And Ryan Chatfield is from Terra Australis. He's a co-producer, spent plenty of time in the water and in front of the camera as well. Guys, g'day. Hello, Jamie. Thanks for that intro, mate. How much fun was this thing to make? Well, it it was probably the best thing I've ever done in my life, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Your wife's listening. Yeah, and I've got kids as well, so... (laughs) Sorry about that. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, the best part of six months going on these amazing adventures with your best mates and, and doing what we love. Uh, I don't know anything that's better than that. Was it bucket list stuff for you too, Brendan? It was, yeah. It was the sort of thing that I never imagined myself actually doing and couldn't believe when we were out there filming, you know, on a liverboard boat for two weeks at a time um, that we were actually doing it. I didn't, I didn't even think, I knew that I was up for it in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like being out in such a remote place, potentially like really big oceans and that sort of thing, I didn't know if I could kind of survive it. Could I hack it? So that wasn't really your world before this this opportunity came up? Well, definitely the ocean is and always has been, you know, living in Fremantle and, um, you know, going on holidays up and down the coast, um, snorkeling heaps, you know, a bit of surfing and all that sort of stuff is part of my lifestyle, but not this kind of thing. It's another level, right? It's another level. And yeah. me- meeting these guys, we actually met um, five or six years ago when I directed um, a short documentary that was on Discovery Channel. Um, and that's how we kind of all came into each other's kind of awareness in a way. And that's where the seed of the idea kind of came about when we did that project a number of years ago. Yeah, right. For you, Ryan, was this a, a little closer to the, the day-to-day, being out in those really remote locations and, and diving down that deep? Yeah, so we our, our background is in oil and gas, so we were commercial divers for, for a long time. That's how I met Johnny and Andre. And, yeah, that was our gig. We'd go to really remote locations and spend most of our time underwater, um, whether it was for working or for pleasure. And our our ability to, you know, you know, spend time underwater and, and, and get through the job, but we were always distracted by what we were seeing down there. You know, so much fish life and sharks and stuff like that. So on our time off, when we'd come back from swing, we'd just go diving again and make short films about the underwater environment. And it just, we started to get momentum on social media. We got a few things run through the news um, that, that got a bit of traction and then, yeah, as Brendo said, we, we managed to pull off the Discovery Channel short doco and that was really the catalyst for, for what's, what's happening right now. That's an interesting point that you make up. Is it really easy to get distracted when you're down there? I, I know you've got a job to do, right? But you're seeing stuff that maybe no one else has or no one else has for a very long time and, and I imagine it's changed a bit, the marine life down there um, as well. Is the distraction a real risk to productivity? Yeah, especially at depth because the time you, time um, diving is so limited when you're at depth. So you really got to be mission focused. But you know we are distracted by shiny objects and and <laughs> most of the most of the fish and and the sharks and the marine life are, are glinting down there and it's easy to for your eyes to wander. But you know part of this series was about the marine life and the underwater environment. So we were lucky enough that we could focus on capturing that uh, that sort of content as well as the shipwreck stuff. For me, it was, you know, as as a director out um, in these amazing sites, like just trying to wrangle (laughs) the team, you know, because they're all so enthusiastic to get in the water, but there's certain steps you've got to go through to get the story down as well. So 
Um, you know, these guys are just an incredible enthusiasm that comes across in the series, really. And um, but managing that sometimes was a bit difficult. So you yeah. felt like the school teacher a little bit at times, and I imagine that's a hard line to balance too, because you want to let things go and you want to capture some of that real, that authentic um, kind of experience, but at the same time you know things that you need to get done as well yeah, yeah. and you've got to make sure that there's a camera there to capture it too yeah. if everyone's just running off and jumping in um yeah so yeah they called me dad a little bit on board. Uh, <laughs> Brendad. that was all right Brendad. yeah <laughs> that was fine the gags are right themselves yeah they yeah. do yeah uh, but the other great thing um about the team is that they existed before we set about doing this project too a lot of people think that we kind of cast for the series and brought these amazing individuals together and it's not the case they were all friends all diving and making videos together before so um i think that is this a real uh, something about the series that um kind of made it happen in a way that they existed already so did that make it an easier job in a way you didn't have to fake any of that camaraderie and you already knew each other so well yeah 100 percent. we were we're we're the best of mates, you know, and we're out there doing what we love and sharing it with your best mates. There's nothing better than that. So, you know, going on these wild adventures, having these incredible marine interactions and, and being there to witness your mate uh, in that position, is, you know, it's just awesome. So we felt really natural for us. We needed Brendan and, and, the, and the wider um, production team to steer us in the right direction in terms of telling stories because our background is just, you know, is filming those beautiful moments, but it's not really detailed storytelling like what we've had to go through with the Disney projects. That was a really great learning curve for us and we're lucky to have Brendo as, as such a good mentor for that as well and, and we, we learn a lot from this series and we hope we can carry through that knowledge into a, into a second series and maybe beyond that. And I think it'll be a much more well-oiled machine. Um, there was a lot of people finding, you know, a lot of us collectively were finding our feet uh, in rough ocean so there was a bit a bit of that um, going on but it t took a huge team effort to, to pull it off because um, we were up against it a fair bit sometimes weren't we and it wasn't as though that we could just wait for perfect weather and then mobilize we had these windows of opportunity to to go and do the filming and you kind of you know you kind of got whatever the weather weather threw at you so we lucked out with some and we got absolutely smashed during others I think that's something I really liked from the series, though, that there were those moments where you could tell you're just having to go with it and the weather gods weren't on your side. I think it was maybe the second episode mm -hmm. where you're up near, I think it was Port Hedland and some pretty gnarly storms yep. came through and you just had to, to go with it. Yeah, and, and at the time, you really are panicking because you're thinking we're going to get like stuck at Anchorage here for you know four or five days and we're not going to be able to do any searching for this particular shipwreck that we we're looking for, Kumbana. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that kind of feeds into the story that you're telling as well and also the incredible editors that worked with us, um, Meredith and Noah and our series producer, Catherine Barrett. They're just like expert storytellers as well. And you can just, considering you're in such an amazing location with such an incredible team, as long as you keep shooting, you're going to be able to piece together a pretty amazing story. Were there nerves with something like this where you're going out but you don't have the ending yet? So there's there's so much left to the unknown and that's the exciting part because that's where the adventure kicks in. But I imagine that's pretty terrifying as well for both of you going, are we actually going to get a story? Are we going to get a conclusion? What's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, I think there were, there were days like that, especially like you want to find something. Yeah. Um, and so... In, in a couple of cases, you know, that happens and, and, you know, you're stoked. But in other cases, it was really pushing, like, let's just one more dive, one more dive. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, though, when, you, when you're hunting for stuff like that, you're always optimistic. It's always like, maybe, maybe this dive, this will be the dive, you know, and you're always propelled forward at, at, the, at the thought of finding something. That's the shipwreck fever. And it's a real <laughs> thing. Like, you, you really think that, oh, okay, maybe maybe just in this spot, this is where it will be. And you just, you know, it, it propels you forward to, to search for stuff. But there was moments where we were just ha hamstrung by, by weather over days and days. And you start to feel the morale shift a little bit because we've got, you know, time pressure. We've got... Um, you know, are we are we going to find something at all? What what's going to be the the end of this this episode? Like you said, but it again, it was just good planning from from the production team and good storytelling and the and the willingness of everybody just to to make something happen. There was no one that was like, oh, this is all too hard. You know, everyone just kept pitching in, pitching in, pitching in until 
until Brendan said that's a wrap. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't want to make a a history series, and we didn't want to make what might be a typical kind of shipwreck series as well, where it's you know the telling of the history, lots and lots of maritime archaeology. All of that is important, but we really saw it as a, like a contemporary adventure series, where you're learning about the shipwreck. Um, and the stories of survival through the experiences of the dive team. And I think that that's kind of, that's worked and it's found its mark. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice balance, wasn't it? Because I felt watching it, I learned some stuff. I also, you know, saw some ridiculous locations and, and the footage was just next level. But it didn't just rely on that. There was, you know, there were stories of people. Uh, it was fun. I felt like I was I was there at times as well. I was part of the crew. I'm on deck. I'm I'm having a good time. You know, it, it kind of married those things together for me. That's great. That's yeah. Great. yeah, and it's been a common thread of the feedback that we've got from the series is that the the team dynamic really was quite strong, and that people felt like they were part of the team. Like people could relate to different characters, and they're like, well, you know, I could probably hang out with those guys if you know, or I could go snorkeling with them at some stage. So there was this emotional connection to the team on, on screen and I think that's what's helped a lot with the success of it all as well is people can really relate to it. They can put themselves in the position. They want to be part of the adventure. Um, and we just had a hell of a lot of fun. So that sort of translates really well as well. I know you touched on it a little earlier, but, but how long did it take for this all to, to come about and, and how did it, did it all happen? Well... Probably something that, you know, Ryan and Johnny, Andre, um, Captain Ash had been throwing around for years and years, like literally, you know, probably a decade talking about doing something like this. Right. Um, The actual, when I kind of came on board and started working more closely with them was around September of 2019. And that was just working up kind of like an outline. Initially, it was just going to be a one-off um, you know, one hour or feature documentary. That's kind of what the guys had in mind. Okay. Something really cinematic um, based on this one particular shipwreck discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we kind of worked it up a little bit, got some development funding through Scream West, um, I went over to the Australian International Documentary Conference and just started having one-on-ones with distributors and so on and realised just how energetic people were feeling about it. We'd done a really good pitch reel, made a great short video, excellent kind of outline everyone loved the team so that really buoyed us to go like all right let's let's look at a series perhaps um and and it kind of took off from there once we got it in uh, an executive producer involved steve bibb he was the former head of abc factual yeah. so like you know he's opening doors he loved the, the the concept and he was shopping it around a little bit and then he was like well i might just go speak to a friend of mine who works at disney you know ne- they don't commission stuff in australia but you never know um, and lo and behold, um, he has this meeting. He says, this guy says, you know, we're about to start commissioning in Australia. This is perfect. Right place, right time, right idea. And then it moved really pretty quick, really. Hey, Ryan, it was like within a few months we were contracting okay. and moving into production. Sometimes yeah. things just work, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was perfect. And we were the first ever Australian commissioned documentary series in Disney history. So that's a, you know, that's a big feather in our cap. But just to go to what Brendo was saying, we tried multiple times with different production companies and different distributors and, and, and pitched and pitched and pitched. And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's amazing. We'll love it. We'll definitely get it up on discovery or Nat Geo. And it just constantly fell through, constantly fell through. So it was, it was a blessing that we got to, you know, reinvent it with Brendan. And then again, that, that right time, right place with Steve and, and, and then ultimately with Disney as well. So we, we tried so many times, but it's a long game. It never happens overnight. Like, you've just got to consistently put in the effort and rework it, make it look different. How can it sound different? Make it tighter. Yeah. How, how did you stay motivated, though, through that period where you, you felt like you got close and it fell through a few we, times? Because we knew it was good. We right. knew we had something, you know, and we, and we knew we had this 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 shipwreck. And who who doesn't love underwater footage and adventure and action? And we just... We just had to get the story right and, and that's where we didn't have that real skill set to tell that story. We knew we could visually make it look epic but we needed the narrative to, to run through it. But they were going to keep doing it anyway, right? So it's not like, oh, we had a go at this and now we're going to try something else. It's They're going to keep, keep diving every day and making stuff. So That was your thing. In yeah. a way, it wasn't ever going to go away really. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it can seem like... Um, you know, a series like this comes out and it seems like it comes out of nowhere almost. Like, no one's heard of these guys before and what is this? So, 
it seems like it must happen really quickly, but um, yeah, even a, a project like this on Disney takes a long, long time to to get at the right pitch at the right place. Yeah, you know what was great as well. You found stuff, and and you know a lot of times you see maybe stories that are pitched similar to this or productions that might feel similar, and you know they're pretty high on uh, on some of the imagery to capture you in, and and they tease it out, and then at the end you go, oh, I didn't I didn't find it. Uh, but you guys found stuff and some really significant um, shipwrecks as well that had, you know, in some cases been there for, for well over 100 years. Yeah, well, I mean, that was that was the linchpin, you know, in, in the series, I think, is having that undiscovered shipwreck, um, the Glenbank, which is, you know, it really helped to... Um, to showcase that that there is still new discoveries to be made out there and then also teaming up with the Maritime Museum and then giving us intel and access to other locations and, and the flying boats in Broome and, and being able to find one of those was another hugely significant find, um, historically significant as well. But again, we didn't just stumble across it. It just took so much planning and so much effort and a use of a lot of really interesting tech as well. So... Um, yeah, it's not just something you can you can you know dive down and bang. Here it is. We had to put a lot of effort into those discoveries, and that um, the discovery of the Glenbank. The story for that goes back even further as well. Really, the, the story that we told is is from knowing that there's a site there, and then working out what the ship is in a way. The story that precedes that is actually um, you know a group of friends in Dampier, Johnny, uh, and a group of other friends knew of this site and they had kind of explored it a little bit um, to kind of work out that something was there. So they're like the original finders of the site and then the Shipwreck Hunters team has sort of taken it that step further and worked out exactly what it is. What was that moment like when all that research, all that work comes together and bang, like here it is? Well, what was amazing, it's been Johnny's baby for so long, like the guy's honestly been obsessed with that wreck site and lost sleep over it and done so much research, hours and hours and hours of, of just commitment to this wreck and then, you know, it was just, it just validated all the work, he, he, he literally managed to, to name an undiscovered wreck, it's now recorded at the WA Maritime Museum but the real tr- treasure, and I believe, is that survivor story that we where we talk about, and then being able to connect those relatives in Finland to their to a granddad's past that they knew nothing of. That was really probably the best moment for me, in, in my opinion. Um, the wreck is amazing, but it's that human element that really changed the whole perspective of the story. Yeah, that's prob- a bit of background there for anyone that hasn't seen it. Yeah, this there's the uh, a Finnish Finnish crew. Um, they're caught up in a cyclone. Um, the 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 ship goes over, doesn't strike anything. It just sinks in the middle of nowhere because of the storm and the and the um, cargo of copper ore that was carrying sort of shifted. And this one guy who's like in his early twenties swims fifteen nautical miles in a cyclone in the middle of the night, fights off a shark attack, and then he's stranded on this island, this remote rocky island that we got to visit in the in the series as well for like four or five days before he's picked up by a passing pearl lugger. Just an incredible story that had been lost to history, one of those just remarkable survival stories. So to uncover it, find like earlier handwritten um, police reports, yeah. and then remarkably through the research team that was working on the series and Johnny and others, um, find his family, descendants of this guy, in Finland, who didn't know anything about the story. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How aware were, were the family? Not at all. Not, not at all. Wow. Not at all. Oh. This guy, their granddad was a farmer. Yeah. Um, never went back to the ocean after this ordeal. You can imagine why. Um, yeah. And probably maybe f- through the traumatic experience, never shared that story with his, his family. Yeah. yeah. It's added like significant cultural history to their family you know they've got new stories to tell their grandkids and they were you know sad that he never felt he could tell the story himself but happy that they now know it and it's going to become part of their family legacy moving forward but we were contacted um post the show from uh, from other relatives you know great granddaughters that just were so thankful that we we brought this to light and they now know you know some really important things about their family history so you know, that, it's so rewarding to be able to do that, connecting people to their families on the other side of the world. Um, you know, from here in WA, 38 metres down under the surface, where, <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're making these 
like global connections is really amazing. Yeah, from Fremantle to Finland. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine <laughs> them them getting that call? You know, we're, we're having to be very careful not to give too much away when yeah. we're making initial contact with them. But what a spin out it must yeah. have been for them. Like this guy is in his late eighties; he's the grandson of this survivor. To then be speaking to some divers in Australia who's found this kind of miracle discovery. It's, it's hang up the phone stuff. It's like prank call worthy, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah on, totally. Like, yeah. Yeah, turn it up. Yeah. yeah. You've got to be kidding me. So what a privilege to be able, for the guys to be able to have that conversation and um, those sorts of things repeated again and again across the series. There's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into these, um, these episodes that doesn't end up on screen too. So all the initial contact you're making with people, the conversations you have with family. And I think also our approach is very much to understand that these are these are sites, shipwreck sites, are places of loss. These are where people have died, um, and that's a very heavy weight. It can it can add a spookiness to to being there too. But we're all very aware of that as well, and try not to um, to overlook that. That's an interesting one because you're out there with with a goal, right? And you find something, and there can be obviously that exuberance through that. But then to have the ability to step back and, and understand what it actually means that that thing's under there, and what that might mean to to other people and, and some trauma that they've gone through as well. That's that's a that's another thing altogether. Yeah, when you put yourself in that position and you're you're over the site of a shipwreck and you're looking around at the at the landscape and then you try to transport yourself back to that moment in time when it was just fear and chaos and and death and and everything all happening at once and the wind would be blowing so loud that you couldn't hear the screams of your mates and you know things are breaking and snapping. And you ultimately know that this is the moment where you know you meet your maker. Yep. That is a really surreal feeling to be in that same spot. And then further to that, we we retraced the steps of survivors through different episodes, and we would literally walk the same tracks, or we would stand in the same caves where these guys spent the most traumatic moments of their life, starving. You know, you know, hypothermic, like in the worst physical condition of their life, and we stood there. And it just, you can't help but feel emotional in those situations because, you know, you, you try to put yourself in that position or you think about your loved ones in that position. It's really, yeah, it, it brings up a lot of emotion. And we wanted to be respectful of that yeah. and, and try to do it justice as much as we can and tell a, a really truthful story, but not make it sad, you know, try to celebrate that their amazing skills and their amazing ability to overcome, you know, this adversity. Yeah. Did, did you actually have those moments though where you, you were able to step back and now that you've, you've found something and you almost tried to think back and picture, you know, how things might have gone down then and what those, those moments might have been like? We're really blessed to have some, in some of them, really detailed accounts that, that literally described what these guys were going through. So, yeah, we, we were there, you know, reading out of a manuscript where they explained exactly what happened and some of it was like a horror film, you know, so... Yeah, we did, we did, it really did sink in in some of those scenarios. I think, yeah, we were always reminding ourselves of that. And that's the, you know, just the conversations at night um, after a day of filming. You're sort of reflecting on that. And with someone like Captain Ash, who's um, just, you know, obsessed with this type of thing, um, really is born in the wrong era. He should have been born in the 1700s and been on one of those Dutch ships coming across uh, along the WA coast. Um he can really put you there. He's a great storyteller. Equally, we had two maritime archaeologists on board, so they're giving you a very detailed sort of historical account. Um, and you're often thinking about, you know, you know, if we think of shipwrecks, you think of treasure, but we kind of look at it in a slightly different way, and it's, it's that revealing of that story it's the marine life and those sorts of things. It doesn't just have to be coins and so on. Yeah. I mean, you found some money in that as well and you kept that out, right? That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah let's say that all the guys are jingling now. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet new cameras. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all spent on gear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Might, right. We might just add that, that you're not allowed to in WA. Yeah. So in all that, it's yeah. really strict. Yeah. In, what in what are the rules when you, when you find something? Yeah. You're not, if, unless you're a maritime archaeologist. Well, the, the West Australian Museum and all state like maritime museums, like govern shipwreck sites. If you, sh if you find a shipwreck, it becomes the property of Western Australia and it's governed and, and managed by them. Um, and you're not allowed to move or touch anything unless you're a maritime archaeologist working for the WA Museum. And prior to the series, we went through training um, from the maritime archaeology team that, that gave us 
you know, the skill sets to assess a site and, you know, if we had to locate something or, or map something or there was an artefact there, we sort of knew how to behave on a rec site because you can't just go in, um, you know, crazy because you can stir stuff up, you can break stuff, you can accidentally touch stuff. So you have to be really careful and diligent, diligent about the way that you move around a site. So that was good to get that, that base understanding of how we needed to operate underwater because it's different to how we normally operate underwater. So the old school view, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> the old school view of um, go in, find it, take it home. That's that's moved on, and now it's about preserving kind of what's there. Yeah. So for for one, it it preserves the site and and thinking of it, its historical significance, loss of life. Uh, but at the same time, other people can go and dive it and see yeah. it in the same way as well. It's also um, important habitat. Like these are thriving ecosystems now as well. So you don't want to damage that either. How, how much has does the ecosystem change or does that marine life almost take over these these wrecks and, and adapt to what's down there? Yeah, it really does. And I guess that's also silver lining for the tragedy of a, of a shipwreck is that they do get reborn as these beautiful, pristine marine ecosystems. The, the fish and marine life just congregate to structure so you know you, you can get everything from the from the macro to the to the pelagic and the sharks and the whales and all that there as well and everything in between. So um, that's why they're such good sites to to dive. Shipwreck sites are amazing to dive because of that that marine interaction. Um, and yeah, and, and if everyone just took bits and pieces of it, then their, their habitat would be severely reduced, and you wouldn't have that you wouldn't have the beauty that's down there. So. Yeah, we were happy to, you know, follow the rules. That, that It's a good way. It's conservation. It's preservation. Um, and then everyone can enjoy it, you know, later on. So Captain Ash was thirsty for treasure. Um, <laughs> but we had to just sort of, re, you know, redirect his ideas of what treasure was for the series. I think we all learned that across it too, yeah. didn't we? we uh, until we sort of learnt these things, we were all like that as well. Um, but um, you do understand as you do more and more just how special it is to kind of leave it uh, as it is, but also capture it on camera in like some, in some ways that can really tell that story. So that became the biggest focus for the guys as divers, given the divers and underwater cinematographers. Um, just just the imagery, as you said earlier, Jamie, is just incredible. Yeah, and the museum haven't dived these some of these sites for over thirty years, right? And, and you know they're shooting everything on film, or it's in you know seven twenty, and we just really brought it into the now, shooting on really high definition cameras, high megapixel stills. It, it changed the, the the resource that they have to, to study these sites further, um, which was really good that we could that we could offer that. And these rec sites aren't in easy spots to access it's not calm water it's not you know that they're wrecked there because it's treacherous so the weather the location it often preserves the wreck itself it's not you can't dive it every day of the year you have to look at tides and wind and swell and water clarity so you know they're hard to get to so you know all that effort that we put in there and the timing that we managed to actually dive six wreck sites in six months effectively was absolutely amazing yeah there's a few hours put into that um for those who haven't seen it how how long would you stay out for at a particular site and and how tough i know you were just talking to it then a little bit but those conditions uh, to navigate for that that period well most of the most of the expeditions were approximately two weeks 10 days 14 days uh, and we had to change our our approach a lot we would sometimes use the mothership the curie pearl with a with a tender other times in other locations we could only use trailer boats um, so it was really, you know, horses for courses. We had to really think about that in terms of logistics and planning. There's a lot of equipment that's required, not only for our camera operators, but all of our diving equipment, the logistics of everybody getting on board, you know, cooking for 14 people, sleeping for 14 people. So much work and planning goes into it and getting everybody up on flights and all that sort of stuff. So amazing to have a team of people that managed all that um, and then – you know, getting to the actual dive sites each day, it was, yeah, it was really weather dependent. And sometimes we went out when you normally wouldn't because we had that mission. And then there was definitely days where there was a lot of people that were very, very green um, because the <laughs> weather was was horrendous. And you can't, you know, nobody can stop seasickness. Like, and, and especially for the camos, looking through the viewfinder when it's like a five-metre swell, 40-knot winds, and Brendan's like, we need to get this shot, we need to do this interview... You know, everyone just had to really, you know, tough it out. Yeah. yeah. There's some days where you have those moments of never again. Like, even though you know it's so great and it's such an incredible opportunity, you're like, 
never again. But then you get back, you all sort of reflect on it, and then you very quickly get um, excited about the next one. It's sort of there's this, I don't know, there's this propulsion to keep going. Yeah, bit like that feeling when uh, you meet up with some old mates and you have a few too many drinks and it goes a little too late and you wake up the next day and go never again until the next time you run into someone <laughs> that such a, you want to share a few yarns with. Yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah. Was there a um, a renewed appreciation for for what we've got here in in WA over the course of filming this one? I think we what we've done with the series is we, we've put a we've put a we've put a spotlight on W like a global spotlight on WA. I think. It, People knew the beauty of Australia and, and maybe West Australia a little bit less than, than the East Coast. But what we've shown is, uh, you know, a raw, rugged, rough and remote, pristine environment that, that holds so many secrets and holds so much adventure. I think uh, in terms of um, the perception of WA and, and eyes on West Australia, we've, we've done something really remarkable there and I'm really proud to, to showcase it. We're, you know, we love, we love being able to, to be ambassadors for Western Australia. For me, like personally, going up to places like Dampier, Port Hedland, which are, you know, huge mining ports, right, and sort of thinking about it from that point of view only whenever I've gone, gone there before, but then to just head out a little bit and find these little islands and um, the Dampier archipelago is absolutely incredible. Uh, Bedout Island, this tiny little island, which is about, I don't know, six hours steam north of Port Hedland. Just beautiful. Like I would never have thought to have gone there before. But then also just some local shoots where we were going across to Rotto and doing like diving training and so on. And um, the guys showing me places that I never knew were there, like these deep caves and, you know, Grey Nurse Sanctuary over there. And um, did some diving even down at Point Perrin and things like that. And you're just like, wow. It's right here. Like it's right where we live. We're all very much ocean-going people here in Fremantle and Perth, right? But it just opened that up for me even more to just know that that's there. It would be something that I'd travel the world to see and it's right there in front of us. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about you, you say the names of those towns and the first thing that comes to mind is is mining and, and red dirt, right? But there's this whole other side to it that's pretty much still completely untapped. Mm, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's, there's tourism, ocean-going tourism around those areas would just, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of fishing charters and yeah. things that goes on, go on there, but just exploring that area, the yeah. archipelago. Dampier, for me, was, just blew my mind. Like, I, I'd been there a lot before and I dived commercial, commercially there a lot, but never in the capacity that we did for this, for this series. And it is an absolute wonderland. And I just don't think it's, it's on, on people's radar because... You know, it's exposed to weather. It's temperamental weather there, but it's also the stigma of the mining towns. Like they just don't realise what's off the coast there, and just has no traffic and no and no people there. So, did you see many people around, or it was pretty much just you and a lot of space? Oh, in terms of people just out diving yeah. or fishing, I mean, so it's locals really that are using those waters. Mm. Um, we yeah, we pretty much didn't see anyone for no that whole length of time that we were there. Um, yeah, so no, absolutely. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is the Montebello Islands. It's just, I felt like I went to another planet or something. You know, it was 30 hours on the boat to get there because we went from Exmouth and you're going north off the coast of Onslow, which is further north, but 120 k's out to sea. And there's hundreds of islands out there that aren't, you know, no one lives there. And there's very few um, land-based animals there as well. And it was the site of the British nuclear tests in the 50s. Right. So it's just like this surreal kind of experience being there. Yeah. There's this huge crater um, underneath the ocean that the guys dived when we f they did a warm-up dive there. It's not in the episode. Just incredible to be diving a, the crater yeah. of a nuclear bomb and at the bottom of it were the remains of the ship that they blew up as well. Yeah. This huge propeller that had in the propeller shaft, which would be, you know, I don't know, maybe... A meter, meter thick. Yeah, it was. It was, like it was massive by the force of this, um, the detonation. That's wild. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, you look at there's a drone shot of our boat sort of going in there, and you can see the full ring of the crater that's on the seabed, and and that was like devastation in terms of what they did there. But the marine ecosystems recovered so well. Like it was, it was amazing to see. You know everything that's come back there. That was that was a really special moment to to that I hadn't been there before, and that. That was amazing. Really, really enjoyed that place. And some of the marine creatures that we interacted with there will, you know, 
blow your mind. We there's a there's a huge cod that when you pull up, it, it kind of lives under this pontoon, but it's as big as a small car. It'd, it'd be you know have to be half a ton and a meter and a half wide and a couple of meters long. And this thing's its mouth was so big, could have easily swallowed Andre Hole, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, one definitely. Sweep. Yeah, yeah, and I it did. It. We haven't seen him since. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know it. whether that's like radiation that's made this thing so big. <laughs> oh but yeah, it, it is. It's everything's super sized out there because it's just it's so healthy yeah. and they've got so much food and there's no there's no predators, you know, uh, and it just it just gives it time to 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 play out like it should mm. and we were lucky enough to spend some time with those sort of creatures and it was awesome. It's like when you just have those amazing travel experiences where you find yourself somewhere and you just have to pinch yourself and look around and you kind of might say it to each other, can you believe where we are at the moment? We had that every single day, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just, um, you know, it's such a privilege to do what we have done. Obviously, it's a lot of hard work but, um, you know, what yeah. an incredible experience. I'm really lucky to, to have been a part of that. I'm starting to understand why off the top you said best thing I've done yeah. you know, through, through those stories. Yeah, and, that, yeah. and but that's the thing. Like every, you know, we for two weeks you'd just go out into this super remote location and, and our job was just to dive and explore and, and research and, 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 and capture what we, were, what we were doing. And then you'd come home and you'd be buzzing from that and you knew that in two or three weeks' time that you're going again. Like <laughs> it was just so exciting. Yeah. So did you have some withdrawals when, when that component was all said and done? Definitely. I still feel sad about it, to be honest. <laughs> like, where, you know, it's just, yeah, it was, it was a big come down. But there was, then there was the excitement of the post-production. There was a lot of work involved in that. And we were getting these glimpses of the storytelling as I started to put it together and, and, and looking at rough cuts and feeding back onto these edits. So that was cool as well because it was starting to come to life. Um, the, whole ro- the whole ride itself was, was really rewarding and exciting as well. But there was definitely a come down of, you know, you know, not being able to say, I'll see you next week and, and then, you know, traversing halfway across the state to, to, to find a new location to dive. I missed it. Yeah. I think in, in production, people talk about that anyway. You know what I mean? There's this really intense period where you're all working together as a team on something and then it's suddenly over. I mean, it's like putting on concerts or whatever it might be, right? So there's this huge high and then there's this massive drop-off. And we were getting that again and again with every trip that we went on. And then once the release comes as well, then you kind of – you have this big – you know, people refer to it as post-production stress disorder. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so um, you do have to kind of – you do have that moment of what do I do with myself now? Um, but we've, we're all so close. Like we are – really like a family now um, after all these years of working together so we talk to each other a lot we spend a lot of time together and we're putting all of our efforts into trying to do another series you know that's that's our, our game plan at the moment yeah um and then a lot of a lot of footage to go through i take it once you're back and i know you would have been doing that through it uh, uh as you were still going away too but were there things when you look back that that surprised you about uh what what you'd been through or you maybe you know, forgotten about until you saw it in front of your face on the screen again? Oh, heaps, heaps. Um, when you watch it, you sort of have this feeling like you can't really believe that you were there, like you experience as an audience almost, and you're like, yeah. And we, we've, you know, been doing lots of kind of media and so on and explaining some behind the scenes of what the actual experience is like too. A lot of, a lot of the experiences I was having was laying on the floor of the boat, like looking at a monitor and calling out to our director of photography what shot to go do next so that that intense experience that you're having when you're actually shooting is different to then sitting back and watching it there's so much that we kind of had to leave out in the end as well is you know what i mean there's sort of you're restricted by the length of the episode and there's so much gold yeah and we're shooting from sunrise to sunset for 10 14 days you know and multiple cameras at the same time two drones in the air three underwater cameras, two topside cameras, you know, all filming flat out. So the amount of content was is huge. And then there was really special moments that we, that we you know, they just didn't quite fit the narrative of the story that we didn't use. But we, we might get a chance to put them up for whether it's social media or behind the scenes or whatever. But what we really like to do and the, and the way that you get really good shots, it, as far as, you know, our, our history in terms of being in the water and underwater and stuff is you just have to put yourself in the position. If you're not floating around, it doesn't happen. And often when you're searching for a shot, it doesn't come. You just have to spend time in the water or you just have to go over to that island and see what's over there. You know, it's that 
that chance of of coming across something that's where the gold comes from yeah yeah which you know when you've been out for a week and five days and you're, you're still bobbing around trying to get stuff can be can be hard to do right you know mm. and there's that that motivation side as well and then once you get it it's Thank yeah. God I did that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But I think for, for us, the Terra team, we're just addicted to, to being in the water. And at any time, we would say to Brenda, do you need us for the next hour or whatever? And, <laughs> yeah. and we'd just slip <laughs> off because we know what's down there. We know what you can get. And we just wanted to maximise our opportunity to get something really amazing. But, you know, there's lots of different little things that, that we did. There was a, an occasion where we just flew that just launched a drone from the boat we're close to an island and it flew it along the shoreline and we saw two upside down turtles these huge turtles upside down and they we thought oh they're dead you know so that was a real shame and it happens a lot because they they that's somewhere that where they breed and nest and they get caught they get caught um sort of trying to breed in the shallows where the waves are dumping in and if they're on the back of each other the, the swell comes in and it flips them over and then the tide goes out and they're stuck upside down. Wow. There's no way for them to get back over. So, yeah. you know, we, we saw that and then we went, back, we went over to the island and um, just to have a look around. And then as we approach these turtles, this one turtle takes this huge breath and we're like, oh, it's alive. And so the team just jump into action and we, we managed to flip these two massive turtles. They'd be like 100 kilos each. It's so big. And, and, collectively we pushed them back into the water and, and they swam off to live another day and that was just you know just a, a chance encounter with amazing wildlife and you know it, and and super rewarding because we just saved the life of these two turtles which is really important for us um but it was just a moment in time that was so special but it, it didn't make the cut because it you know didn't fit the narrative but it's just yeah. we still got it we've got that footage and you know it's it's there for everyone to see at some point but well, it's a memory for you too i yeah. mean that's that's good stuff for the soul right there isn't oh really it? good mm. you know, and, and there's yeah. you know there's we could there's so many of those moments throughout the series mm. there's also the you know you you don't get complacent but you get used to seeing sharks right as well and i get used to the divers being in the water with sharks um, and sometimes i'd be back in the edit suite and look at something and think oh my gosh that is like there's a three-metre hammerhead right behind Andre or, you know, whatever it might be. And there was a couple of moments where, luckily, um, the team have got a really good understanding of shark behaviour. Um, they've done a lot of work around that. And it's it's almost like, you know, seeing a dog at the park that might be a bit, you know, you know, you know, you know, you need to sort of keep away from that particular dog. Sharks can behave like that a little bit. I learned to kind of understand that. So these guys have a good sense of that. But there was one occasion where um, Nush had actually fended one off with a GoPro. Yeah, um, right. Which came up a little bit too close. And she watched it, watched it again. And when, when it came in again for another little look, she had to just give it a, little, a prod with the GoPro and it took the GoPro from her. Wow. So we lost that footage. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, those little reminders. And she handled it so well because she's, you know, her ability in the water is incredible. Um, but you just sort of get reminded then when you're back in the edit suite and you see stuff, you're just like, wow, yeah. Was that something you were really mindful of? There's, there's that line there, right, where you it wasn't the type of show that wants to sensationalise no. anything about that with with sharks, but also when you're down there having the, the respect and, and just knowing when, when time is to maybe get out or pull back or to be a little bit kind of more careful. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're super conscious of that, you know, taking a, an educated and calculated risk, I guess, and, and respecting the animal before anything else is really important because they are still wild creatures. There's, yeah. no, there's no two ways about it and they're really powerful and they've, you know, sharks, really strong teeth, but it's not just the sharks. There's all sorts of other marine creatures that could hurt you if you got in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But we'd never wanted to paint them in the, in the light that you do see in some docos where it's, they're all man-eaters, they're all vicious, they're all in attack, because it's not real, it's not the reality, they're not, they're really intelligent, they're super calculated, um, and most of the time in the locations that we were diving, they're, they're not even hungry, there's so much food there, you know, so um, we always put ourselves in a position where we were comfortable, where the shark wasn't stressed or the animal wasn't stressed, and just made a real conscious effort to to show positive interactions with those sort of marine species, and if there was ever an issue where it got a little bit... Um, you know, a little bit tense, then we just get out of the water because it's not really worth, you know, losing a limb for. And I, I guess when, you, when you're seeing it in the episode, you're not thinking about what goes into each dive as well. Every dive is planned. You know, there's, there's a, a team meeting before every dive. 
Um, we have a risk facilitator that's um, attached to the project. Before we even go out on an expedition, we go through certain scenarios. So there's, there's a huge amount of safety planning that goes into it as well, so that then your risks are very kind of calculated. What was the most hairy moment for you, whether it was weather or marine life or, or both that you encountered when you were, you were out there for this show? It's a long list. Yeah, we were like the risk facilitators' nightmare, to be honest, because we're remote locations, di- in, you know, doing diving ops with you know sometimes sort of really highly populated shark-infested waters, and it was at depth. At depth, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, we we didn't have any sort of real scary close calls. There was that you know a couple of interactions there with, with the sharks that Brendan touched on with the bull shark, as they're, they're not the most friendly. And then just some really rough seas. Um, transferring between vessels sometimes was pretty hectic because they're side by side and you could easily, you know, lose a leg if you if you time that wrong. So, but a lot of it was, you know, we, was, we discussed that it was always safety first before the shoot and, and a lot of it was avoided, you know, any sort of really bad scenarios. But there was a situation where Johnny got knocked at depth um underwater where he you know it's common for divers it happens a lot it's you can't well, it's got knocked ron yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's sorry. diving language yeah. Yeah. He's so you know um at depth generally anything over 20 plus meters you're exposed to nitrogen narcosis and the nitrogen is something that we breathe normally all the time but um when it's compressed it can it can affect it, it sort of saturates your tissues when you're at depth um, because of the pressure and it can cause, um, you know, um, you can be disillusioned, sort of not thinking clearly. Your, your motor skills are affected. Um, it can cause anxiety and panic, and and it, and it just blocks the way that you would normally function underwater. Um, and it happens all the time, whether you're recreational, or commercial divers. And you pr- sometimes you're predisposed to it. There's things that can happen. You can be breathing too hard, working too much, where you went down too fast. And um, yeah, so Johnny. Uh, was he was tasked with a job? We're at thirty six meters of water, so it's you know it's pretty deep, and yeah, he he suffered narcosis. So t- to get rid of narcosis, all you have to do is come up a few meters, and and it reduces, and, and your head gets cleared. But when you're in it, you can't even think to do that. Right, you know? it, it's debilitating sometimes. So he had to, you know, Andre and I were down there with him. We we relieved him of his task, so he had th- that was taken away, and then he just needed to to maintain composure and uh eventually he sort of sorted his shit out but the problem is that if you don't have that support it can go pear-shaped pretty quick and it's a horrible horrible feeling it's like the worst panic attack that you could imagine um so you know there's there's things like that that are real risks that's a that's a real danger and it doesn't matter how brave you are or how great a diver you are or any of that stuff doesn't come into it you know you're always um there's always risk when you're that deep yeah, uh, and and you can't get to the surface real quick, and you know you can always drown. You can drown in five hundred mil of water, let alone thirty eight meters, um, with a lot going on at the same time. So that's where your training comes down. That's where your teamwork comes down. That's where being conscious of each other in the water, what you're up to, how they look, how they're behaving. You know that was that was that comes with experience together and experience in the water. You sort of start to see those telltale signs. And Andre and I noticed. Johnny's behaviour straight away. We could see that something was going on. There was some. We could. We did have comms, but even the comms, you, you, the conversation was even not fluent and clear. And and that we, you know, we're forgetting to press our buttons. We we're just yelling through the masks because there's that panic starts to come up. You know, so um, those sort of situations. Although we that one we got out of that one all right, it could easily go the other way, like just yeah. like that, real yeah. quick. When you're on board, just waiting. For this stuff to kind of <laughs> waiting for divers on board, even though you in most ca- in most cases we've got comms with them, um, can be pretty pretty heart wrenching, especially when that these guys are also incredible free divers. So often they're not on scuba, um, and you're not in communication with them. Andre's got something like a three minute breath hold, so he was free diving. He was free diving a 36, 38 meter deep wreck site, 
Um, so he's gone for two or three minutes. Once it gets past about a minute and a half, you're watching your watch, you're looking around, where is he, where is he, could be stuck or whatever. So that's yeah, that's pretty um, scary. Yeah, you got a stressed you on your friend toes. dad. Yeah. 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 I told you to come straight back. <laughs> Get back to the surface. Do you want to make me this stress? Look at me. <laughs> I guess the other thing that was a real eye-opener for all of us, because we, we are experienced divers, but when we went to Broome, that was a whole new ball game for us because none of us had dived up there. Um, we'd dived in limited visibility before, but that's a whole new mix. You've got really strong tides, you've got crocodiles, and you've got bull sharks. So, you know... That's three strikes right there. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> deep, yes. deep water yeah. as well. And then, and then, you know... And the water's super milky because of that anything. tidal change. You can't see anything. Yeah. The visibility is, is zero. Yeah. And then you think about those creatures that are cruising around. And the crocs, I absolutely shit myself when, it, when I think about the crocs in there because they're just not something we've ever dived with. You can't see them. They're silent. And um, I just, yeah, they're and really they're, unnerving. That and then Ryan went missing on yeah, that particular dive. Missing, yeah. yeah, Where'd you go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got, I, because of that zero visibility, I lost the shot line or I lost where our search pattern was. And, it, you know, like the line can, can be 10, 20 centimetres away from you, but you can't see, you can't see your hand over your mask. So this is a line that goes back to the surface? Well, or? yeah, it's, yeah, it goes to the surface, yeah. So it's your marker boy. So you're, you're marking the spot and we call it the shot line and you go up and down as your reference point. Right. And then when you get to the bottom, you run another sort of horizontal line out and you use that as your search pattern for the grid. Um, but I've got cameras, I've, you've got dive gear, you're trying to communicate, your hands are always really busy and, you know, you, I just let go of the line thinking, oh, I'll just put my hand straight back on it. I haven't moved. And it was gone like that. And so, yeah, I just couldn't communicate, didn't know where the shot line was. I've lost all my points of reference. Um, so, yeah, so protocol is you sort of just wait for a minute or two and then you ascend to the surface. Um, but the guys on the top couldn't – the comms wasn't the comms working. comms were down at the same yeah, time. Of course yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was lost. I couldn't communicate with anyone. The boat couldn't communicate with me. And then, yeah, the, the – tension and the stress started to build so how did you feel in that in that moment because you're experienced but did you still feel yeah. that panic oh 100 you still feel the anxiety i i it's a, it's a horrible feeling to have because you don't want to there's one you don't want to you know you've you've botched the dive because you can't do your job now so there's that um but also it starts to leak into your mind like you know you're in no man's land you're, you're not near the other divers you're in this water you can't see you could be under structure and you don't know because that's the worst case scenario you're underneath something and you try to go up and you can't and then you can't find your way out so that's like that's horrible so you start to feel like that and then there's the crocodiles or whatever so you just have to follow your training go, follow the protocol which is you know like i said go to the surface but yeah you're shitting bricks absolutely shitting bricks mm -hmm. and on board it's probably the the most kind of tangible time where i saw that johnny and Nushu were on board, were worried. Right. Yeah. yeah. So and it's only, only 30 seconds or something like that, but the, you're sort of checking in with each other a little bit, like, and you're still rolling. You're almost and reading the body language too, a little bit. Like, oh, eye. yeah. Johnny's yeah. actually concerned here. Mm. Now I'm really worried. Yeah. yeah. Keep filming. You know, because you don't <laughs> want to sure miss it, but is Ryan all right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you're sitting here now, so you, yeah. you found yourself up was, okay. It was so funny because lots of friends talked to us about watching that scene and that their, their partners or the kids were like, oh, is he all right? Oh, no, we've lost tense. Ryan. He's gone, he's gone. And they were like, well, you know he's all right because we saw him yesterday, so it's, yeah. it's going to be fine. <laughs> this, yeah. this isn't life, kids. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, it, you know, great storytelling. It built the tension and, and um, it did cover the scenario very accurately. That's, that's yeah. kind of how tense it was. And, and maybe a, a great one for other divers or people, because this will encourage a whole heap of people to, to get into this world, which is so. a fantastic thing, right? Mm. But something like that with people so experienced to still go through it is probably a great lesson for those and, and even the experienced ones watching too. Yeah, and I think you'll find, um, you know, most diving accidents are really experienced divers. Yeah. It's not, it's not the newbies. Um, it's the guys that are pushing the limits or the guys that are, you know, diving the deepest or going the furthest into the caves they're the ones that are that are dying and you know it happens with that in mind you've hinted at it a little bit but season two well um fingers crossed you know that's uh, uh, we still want to put in the work to really make sure that um a series two would be just as fascinating as series one and um whether we do that 
expand out all around Australia or, you know, West Australia is such an incredible place to for these shipwrecks as well, historical shipwrecks. Um, look, uh, after a few months and seeing how it performs, um, the early signs are really, really good. Um, then we'll have some more discussions with Disney, but at this stage you don't have any kind of definites. How did it feel when you, you flicked on the, the Disney Plus app and you saw the big banner across the top uh, with, you know, your show right there, number one top billing on a platform like that? Absolutely surreal. Incredible. We were all, you know, sending each other messages and calling each other with screenshots and so on. It's just, yeah, it's one of those things where you just can't quite believe what you're seeing, yeah. Mm. yeah. And it was just, it was super, I was so proud and it was so rewarding because you just know how much effort has gone into it. And, um, you know, yeah, and just just so stoked that my kids get to see it and, and mm. there's, it's, a, it's a legacy, you know, no matter what happens from here forward, that's always going to be there for, for my kids and their kids and all of our kids to, to, to watch. But, you know, being positioned between Captain Jack Sparrow and <laughs> Thor and there's, there's us, it's, it's huge. And, yeah. and sometimes you, you forget about how big a deal it is. Like it just kind of feels like, oh, yeah, you know, for us it was – we did it. But, you know, it's not until it's up on platform and you're getting messages from all around the world saying this is one of the most incredible series I've ever watched. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for creating discussions around the ocean with my family. Thank you for, you know, generating interest in shipwrecks with my kids, that sort of stuff, just feeding into us. You realise the impact of what you've made is having. Yeah, yeah we, we, knew, we knew it would be a hot start locally because obviously, you know, your friends and, you know, Western Australia is going to be really into it. But now to be getting, like, private messages from a mum in Missouri, like, you know, landlocked Central America saying... I've never even knew about Western Australia and I want to go diving there now to, um, you know, we got a, a message the other day from a, a guy who said he was in an apartment building in the middle of New York. I've never emailed anyone before of any TV show, but I just felt so compelled. I really felt like I've just been diving with you. You're just like, this is just awesome that we're having this kind of impact in this reach. And also that families are watching it together. We could have really pushed for a much more M-rated kind of show. Yeah. Um, and early on, we wanted to go there. We wanted it to be really piratey and really kind of swashbuckling adventure. Um, you know, we wanted to keep all the, the language in it. Um, and we were re really encouraged to sort of maybe move away from that just so that we could appeal to a family audience. And I reckon it was the right call because it's just so satisfying to see, you know, people sending us the videos of their five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid watching the show, sort of play acting as a shipwreck hunter. Yeah. You're just like, wow, this is this incredible kind of um, moment that we're having here. Yeah, that's cool. Because in that moment, you generally want to do what you want to do, right? And it's hard when someone maybe gives you some advice that's that's counter to that. Yeah. Especially yeah. In, in that kind of zone as well where – you know, it's not censorship, but you're like, we've got this great stuff, you know. We, mm. we, we could push it and make it a little bit harder, but how it's turned out is, is, is probably perfect. And the thing is, it's a documentary. We're not actors or anything like that, so it's, it's sort of capturing who we are as people and how we interact with each other, and especially Captain Ash. He's, he's prone to a swear word, so it was... <laughs> I was going to say that if you F-bombs on the cutting room floor, surely just from him alone. So many. <laughs> where, where is he, by the way? I mean, he is a real... There's some great characters on the show, but yeah. he is a real character he almost looks like a pirate with his with his tattoos and his vibe and his seven he's just fingers. got that feel and his seven fingers yeah. and all that stuff he sure is he's the real deal he's the he's you know he's not a made-up character that we're asking to play a certain role that's just the way that he is he's an incredible entrepreneur um a designer he designed um darling darling the small bar in Fremantle. yeah um it's a perfect setting for your, your catch-ups and yeah <laughs> it is because it's yeah. the it's the shipwreck hunters clubhouse yeah. we're calling it, it yeah. like a film set we're yeah. so lucky to have that you know but he's he's also designed about 60 bars through southeast asia he was like yeah. hot hot property over in in hong kong and and, yeah. and other asian countries um doing these incredible bar designs but he's also got a best-selling um book called Children. the iron fairies aimed at a sort of younger audience that he did years and years ago um he's now running a, a seaweed business in the abrolis islands mm. he's the first person to be given a license to have a shack out there other than a cray fisherman ever so it's just he's just got this knack and this this entrepreneurial kind of drive one yeah. of those guys he just yeah. makes it makes it work yeah yeah, yeah. that's why you 
you know, everyone wants to talk to him, but he, he's a recluse. He lives on this tiny little shack in one of the most remote locations in the world. Not, you know, that's because what he does, that's his life. He, he is up there and he's often, there is no reception. If the wind's blowing the wrong direction, you can't even get hold of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's amazing that you, you're able to get him involved in it. And um, it obviously kind of spoke to his interest and what he wanted to pursue. He seems yeah, like a guy yeah. that just does stuff he yeah. wants to do. He's incredibly <laughs> passionate and a really like well-versed historian as well. He really yeah. knows his stuff and, and, he, and he, he does bleed that shipwreck um, you know, the hunting for it. He, he, he loves it and he's passionate about it. So, you know, he, there, was, there was ways that he would have done it, potentially done it differently just through, because, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. So we had to wrangle him in to a few things occasionally. But what you see on screen is what you, is what you get. That's the real deal yeah. um, with Ash. Yeah, I might have to catch up with him on the Abrolis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if he'll have you. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, might yeah. kick me off. Um, yeah. Guys, congratulations on uh, on the series. It's it's bloody awesome. It's great to see it on there. And um, yeah, thanks for having a chat. Appreciate it, mate. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. That's Living the Dream by Gage Rhodes. Gage is an indie brewer just out of Frio in WA that's all about going after it and having an epic time with a few brews. Check them out at gagedroads.com.au. Thanks again for having a listen. Subscribe so you don't miss an app. Share it with your mates. Chuck us a rating. And get in touch if there's someone you want to hear from on the potty. I'm Jamie Burnett. Cheers.